reading today, which is from the first book of Kings, chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, "'What are you doing here, Elijah?' He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all those whose mouths have not kissed him. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and reading from verse 13.
Better raise that up a little bit. It'll pick me up better now. Right. On that same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about 11 kilometres from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. And as they talked and discussed, Jesus himself drew near and walked along with them. And they saw him, but somehow didn't recognize him. And Jesus said to them, what are you talking about to each other as you walk along? And they stood still with sad faces. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening there these last few days? What things, he asked. The things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. This man was a prophet and was considered by God and by all of the people to be powerful in everything that he said and did. And our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And he was crucified. And we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to set Israel free. And besides all that, this is now the third day since that happened. And some of us, some of the women of our group, surprised us. And they went at dawn to the tomb and couldn't find his body. And they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who had told them that he is alive. And some of our group went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are. How slow you are to believe everything the prophet said. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And Jesus explained to them what was said about himself in all of the scripture, beginning with the books of Moses and the writings of all the prophets. And as they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they held, on, they held him back, saying, stay with us. The day is almost over. It's getting dark. And so he went in to stay with them. And he sat down to eat with them, took the bread and said a blessing. And then he broke the bread and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, wasn't it like a fire burning in us? 
Wasn't it like a fire burning in us when he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And they got up at once and they went back to Jerusalem where they found the eleven disciples gathered together with the others and saying, The Lord is risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And the two then explained to them what had happened on the road and how they had recognized the Lord when he broke the bread. Amen. Many of us are familiar with the sequence of events that led up to the crucifixion. They are portrayed for us in the biblical narrative. But it is difficult for us at this distance that we are from the Passover weekend in about 30 AD to appreciate the impact of the events that began with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This culminated in the growing conflict between the establishment and Jesus that in the space of about a week moved so rapidly to end in the crucifixion of Jesus at Golgotha on the Joppa Road outside Jerusalem. Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey with all of the symbolism that that had had for the Jewish people and perhaps more significantly, the Jewish establishment. He had gone on to overturn the tables of the money changers and to rid the temple of the menagerie that had been assembled as part of the scam that made significant gains for the temple's treasury. He had engaged in large number, with large numbers of people, both teaching and healing them as he went. And then at the beginning of Passover, he celebrated with his disciples whilst also instituting the breaking of bread that we are going to celebrate in a few minutes and that most Christian churches celebrate around the world to this day. From then on, he was betrayed. I'll say that again. He was betrayed by Judas Iscariot in an action that reads very much as if he had conspired with Judas to be betrayed. And he then endured a mockery of a trial, and despite being declared innocent by Pilate, the Roman regional governor. He was crucified anyway. Pilate was egged on by a baying mob, which had been drawn together, presumably, by the priesthood. The crucifixion took place on a bare hillside on the road to Joppa which must have borne some similarity in appearance to a skull, as the meaning of the name of that place was Golgotha. The hymn, suggesting it was a green hill, 
was somewhat fanciful. Even though the Gospels were written between 30 and 60 years after the events they portray, they reveal something of the confusion and bewilderment that the disciples had experienced as they tried to come to terms with these events. The reaction of Peter, who tried to retaliate against the arrest squad and was rebuked by Jesus for his efforts, was followed by a general scattering of the disciples. Thomas appears to have gone alone, gone off alone, and he missed completely the initial excitement at the earliest resurrection appearances. And then there were these two. Cleopas, or Clopas, one name may well be a misspelling of the other, but we don't know which way round. He had a companion, thought by some to be his wife, who is named elsewhere as Mary. Perhaps she was one of the women brushed out of the story. They seemed to be attempting to run away from the whole thing, believing perhaps that it was all over. Some scholars suggest that Cleopas was a relative, a brother perhaps, of Joseph, the father of Jesus, which if true would have made him Jesus' uncle. The location of Emmaus is a puzzle. We have little idea where it is. There are several sites which have been suggested as possible locations, and here are the four most likely ones. These sites have one thing in common. They're all to the west of Jerusalem. And they vary between the village of Motza, five and a half miles from Jerusalem, to the village of Imwas, which was a cool 18 miles from Jerusalem. Both are along the road to Joppa, and for that matter, the road to modern Tel Aviv. The walk from Jerusalem could have been as little as 90 minutes to Motza, or five hours to Imwas. And both of these distances could have meant that it would have been entirely possible to walk to them and then return to Jerusalem within a day. The little party appeared to have stopped for the night. They may have reached their destination, although we can't be sure, and they have had an interesting and encouraging conversation with this stranger who just appeared alongside them and struck up a conversation. This wouldn't have been unusual, as the perils of travel in the first century were sufficiently threatening that people tended to travel in as big a group as was possible for their own protection. The stranger seems to have quizzed them 
about what had happened in Jerusalem. And they seemed surprised by his apparent ignorance of those events. As they couldn't envisage someone being in Jerusalem and not being aware of the fracas. They didn't expect Jesus to be alive. They admitted that they had heard the rumours of his resurrection, but they were clearly sceptical and certainly weren't expecting him to appear to him. It was all over. What would be the use of trying to carry on without him? We don't know what Jesus said to them, but it was clearly a Talmud story, it was a Talmud study of the first order. He had put their experience into a context. A context that said, it was always going to happen this way. It was a context that said, Jesus was in a battle which, contrary to appearances, he won. It was in a context that said, God is in charge and he knows exactly what he's doing. The fact that a group of Jews met together in a house and then at a significant point broke bread together was not the slightest bit unusual for Jews. Even Jews who were strangers to each other. It would be like the instant camaraderie that I feel when I come across a fellow scouser. There would be an instant recognition of the distinctive accent. All right, La. And the quiz that would set out to determine the part of Liverpool that we had both lived in, usually in the hope that there was some place that we had both worked at or socialised in. And this would be followed by an examination of the people we might have met to see if we shared a common friend's or even relatives. I cannot tell you just how many times I've been asked if I have met the Beatles, <laughs> or Scylla Black, or Jimmy Tarbuck, or Ken Dodd, or any of the other Scouse notables. For the record, I did go to school with a nephew of Ken Dodd. Philip Dodd of Naughty Ash. Although I've not seen him since, and I can say with some certainty that he isn't the creature in the red hat. <laughs> it is notable that Cleopas and his companions failed to recognise Jesus from his appearance, from his walk or even from the sound of his voice. I was astounded one day, many years ago, when my mother, here she is in a later stage of her life, when my mother announced in the middle of the street, that's your Uncle Tom, I would know his walk anywhere. Uncle Tom was a good half a mile away. And I couldn't pick him out at all. 
let alone recognize him as a specific individual. It was at the point when Jesus broke the bread, and probably when his hands with the nail prints were seen for the first time. Cleopas suddenly had that moment when all the hairs on the back of his head, of his neck, stood on end. And the mixed feelings and emotions came together in a flash of recognition. It was Jesus, and he was alive. It's quite hard for us to view the situation with all the uncertainty and tension that Cleopas and his companion would have been in. They would have known that it was not normal for crucified men to walk again. They would have known that grief does strange things to your mind. They would have known that when in grief you often see, or at least think you see, the missing loved one in a million different situations that all proved to be false. Maybe they had seen the characteristics of Jesus and then just dismissed them as the effects of grief. He couldn't possibly be alive, could he? It is entirely possible that the clincher was the nail prints which were viewed for the first time in the act of breaking of bread. You see, we're all capable of failing to recognize God is at work. We're all capable of failing to see the presence and the power of God precisely because He just slips in alongside us and acts in a very ordinary human way. And we often miss God precisely because we expect him to come in a shower of fireworks. When the only indication we have of his presence is that our hearts burn within us. In our present age, when we're all expected to promote ourselves at every opportunity, we can so easily miss the presence of God precisely because he doesn't promote himself. If Jesus walked on earth today, he wouldn't be taking selfies to prove he had been here. Vanity was considered a far more serious evil in the past than it is today. It seems that in a far more crowded world, in which competition is lifted into a virtue, self-promotion is widely accepted as normal. The associated problem is that those who don't or can't self-promote tend to lose out in modern society. 
whether or not that ought to be the case, could prove to be the subject of a rather interesting discussion. A subject for a cafe church, perhaps. Back in the 1970s, the gospel singing group of which I was a part was invited to sing and preach at an evening service at Dalton Baptist Church in Huddersfield, to which we readily agreed. Soon afterwards, they came back to us and asked if we could make a day of it by singing at their morning service. And we were told that the preacher of that service was to be a representative of the BMS. And the day came, and after a journey of nearly two hours from Liverpool, we arrived at the Dalton Church in the centre of a scruffy house of the state in the eastern suburbs of Huddersfield. We were ushered into the vestry, where we were introduced to the BMS representative, a certain Reverend Alberic Clement. He was somewhat elderly, bald, and a slightly goofy-looking face. I've searched in vain for a picture of him on the internet. However, I did discover that the last history of the BMS was written in 1870, so perhaps it's time for another one. (laughs) We introduced ourselves with the group's name, Agape, And I can clearly remember spelling out to Mr. Clement the meaning and our understanding of the Greek word, agape. He stood opposite us, listened carefully, and acknowledged our explanation. And we had a pleasant day and we returned to our respective homes. Some years later, in 1983, I was reading a copy of the Baptist Times. And on the obituary page was the same bald, slightly goofy face that we had been speaking to in Huddersfield. Alberic had died. His obituary said that he had been the general secretary of the BMS, no less, and had been for a number of years, and that he had been a fluent speaker in biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek. In all of my detailed and probably faulty explanation of the word agape, he had just let me get on with it. He could have taught me far more than I could ever have taught him. But I didn't know that then. The humility of the man struck me at the time with great force. Simply because I didn't recognize him and was taken in by appearances. I completely misjudged him. The words that I can now use of him would be that he was a most incredibly humble, gracious and kind man. 
that his very humility actually hid him from me that Sunday in Huddersfield. Sadly, Dalton Baptist Church closed its doors for the last time in 2018. In the 9th century BC, the prophet Elijah was a resident of Tishbe, a village believed to be on the eastern bank of the Jordan River at a place now known as Wadi Korath in modern-day Jordan. It was what gave him his surname, the Tishbite. Anybody who wishes to call me Robert the Scouser is very welcome. He had done what prophets had always done. They pointed out wrongdoing and injustice wherever they saw it. All the prophets of Israel spoke truth to power from time to time and usually against the kings of both Samaria and Judah. King Ahab, the son of Omri of Samaria, is recorded to have said of a different prophet, Micaiah, I hate him. He never prophesies anything good for me. It is always something bad. You can read about that in the book of 1 Kings 22. Elijah had the commission to protest about the Baal cult that had been imported from Phoenicia and had become popular in Samaria. Ahab's queen, Jezebel, had come from Phoenicia and had brought the Baalism with her. Phoenicia is the country we now call Lebanon, just to the north of Samaria. Elijah's protest had resulted in a contest about whose God was the greatest, and it had taken place at a hilltop site to the west of Galilee, known then as Mount Carmel, Today it is known as Haifa. Elijah had a great victory here when Yahweh answered his prayer and a fire consumed an offering prepared on an altar and built for the purpose at the hilltop location. Ever since, the plain below the mountain has always been associated with God's judgment. It was called the Plain of Megiddo, or in Greek, Armageddon. Despite this victory, and in response to the wrath of Jezebel, Elijah fled for his life. He fled to Beersheba, in southern Judah, a waterhole in the Negev Desert well beyond the jurisdiction of Ahab and Jezebel. 
The name Beersheba means the seven wells. And it refers to a number of wells dug by both Abraham and Isaac some ten centuries beforehand. From Beersheba, Elijah crossed the Sinai Desert to Mount Horeb, otherwise known to us as Mount Sinai, where between six and nine centuries before, Moses had been in receipt of the two tablets of stone inscribed with what we know as the Ten Commandments. A deeply worried and frightened Elijah retreated into a cave and wished to die. Isn't it reassuring when we discover that many mighty men and women of God will sometimes get worried, frightened, and depressed? He was clearly overwhelmed by the threat from Jezebel, and he needed a very special touch from God. He waited within the cave, but God takes him to task. Elijah takes up a position, at God's instigation, at the mouth of the cave, and a terrible wind passes. But God's not in the wind. Then there is an earthquake. But God's not in the earthquake. Then there is a great fire pass by. But God's not in the fire. But then there is a still, small voice. Some translations describe it as the sound of silence. Elijah discovered that the, rest, the real essence of God was not in power, political or theological, nor is it in the spectacular with people smashing crutches or abandoning wheelchairs. It isn't in the personality cult with its exemplary preaching or deeply revelatory Bible study. It's not even in the pure church structure, uncorrupted by dishonesty or manipulation. It's in the sound of silence. It's easy for us to get distracted by the spectacular, by amazing preachers, by huge crowds, of great, or great miracles. It's easy for us to be wowed by the brilliant music group. Oh, now it starts to hit home, doesn't it? By the powerful praying for healing. Or by amazing miracles. But in the midst of all that, our faith is, in the end, driven by a still, small of a God who speaks to us from within. 
This voice can really only be heard when we are silent before God and recognize that God can only be heard in that silence. Now, I know this doesn't sound very exciting, but God works without regard to the public impact of what he does. This is why when Jesus was crucified, few could see anything of the reality that was lurking beneath the apparent tragedy unfolding before them. This is why the disciples were scattered. This is why they were gathered in an upper room behind a locked door. They were terrified. Because whilst Jesus was among them, they didn't need to listen to the sound of silence. This is why they didn't receive a visit from the Holy Spirit for 50 days. They had to learn to listen for the still, small voice of God. Who could make their hairs stand on end, on the backs of their necks, and make their hearts burn within them. They had to become familiar with that sound of silence, and so do we.